I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. If you are a guest with us, we're in the beginning uh, weeks of a, a rather lengthy series we're doing, and we're, it's called Expectancy. We're spending time in the Gospel of Mark, and we're progressing through verse by verse and section by section, and just looking at the life of Jesus and the ministry and the authority of Jesus. And it's called expectancy because I truly believe any time that we take time to look specifically at the life of Jesus, or really any time we approach God's Word, our heart should have an expectancy for God to do something, for us, Him to transform our lives. And in fact, I'm excited about, I'm excited about every Sunday, but I'm excited about next week. And I would encourage you uh, to make plans to join us and encourage you as well to bring someone with you who perhaps is just in need of physical healing or struggling with a physical ailment, because we're going to look and talk about the ministry of Jesus when it comes to healing. And then we're going to end our service by spending time in prayer, praying for the sick and really believing for God to bring healing into people's lives. And so what I would encourage you, and I'll say this again next week, but don't come waiting. And and then when you get to the front, pray and hope that God heals you, but come with an expectancy. Come with an expectancy for God to bring healing into your life, into your friends' lives. And because the Bible tells us expectancy, really, what it is is faith. And faith is an avenue that God can flow freely through. So I would encourage you uh, next week uh, to make plans to join us. Well, I believe one does not have to look very far in our society to recognize and see the cultural obsession that it has with the supernatural and with the demonic While our culture does a good job of making it more a source of entertainment and trying to make it more a source of fright or or a lighthearted matter, the Bible makes it very clear that we have a very real enemy, the devil. The devil is not a fanciful figure or merely a symbol of evil, but rather he is a very real being and really is the source of all evil. The Bible goes on to tell us that the devil does not function alone, but rather he functions with a host of demons that help to assist and carry out his work. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that demons are very real, that the demonic is very real. It's nothing to be made light of. It's nothing to be used as a source of entertainment. It's nothing to be considered fanciful. In fact, when it comes to to the demonic realm, the Bible gives us much instruction on it. And just by way of a few things quickly to help us ready for the passage we're going to look at, the Bible makes it clear, clear that demons are very real. The demons are a very real spiritual force. It teaches us that demons were originally angels created by God to be in his presence and to serve him forever. The Bible then goes on to explain to us that Lucifer, out of arrogance and rebellion, led a rebellion against God and ultimately took a third of the angels, which became the demonic forces and the impure or evil spirits that we see influencing our world today. The second thing the Bible makes clear to us when it comes to the demonic realm is that demons are eternal beings. That demons are eternal beings. They were made originally to be for eternity in the presence of God, but because of their rebellion will in turn spend eternity in hell apart from God along with those who reject God. The Bible also tells us that we can, we can assume and know that uh, demons number in the millions. Demons number in a very large amount, while the Bible makes it clear that God has a host of angels and a third of them fell to the earth, 
But the Bible teaches us and, and helps us understand that they're very real and very active in the present. And we can assume a larger number of them because the Bible, when it teaches us about angelic beings, it teaches us about the supernatural. We know that our Heavenly Father, we know that God is omnipresent. He can be in multi-places at once, that He is all-powerful. But when we look at angels in Scripture, we see and learn that angels are limited by time and space. They're in one place or another. They're not in multiple places at once. And knowing that demons are angels that have fallen, they're limited by time and space. So we when we look at the world, we look at their influence, we can arrive at the very large number that exists. The Bible also teaches us when it comes to the demonic that they are not sitting in hell somewhere, but rather they are loosed on the earth. That they're loosed on the earth, they're loosed in the world in which you and I live. The Bible speaks to this continually. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It identifies that when we live in the, our sinful, towards our sinful desires and our sinful self, we're aligning our lives with the spirit of the world, the demonic realm, and allowing our lives to be a source of influence. The Bible goes on to tell us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that the devil roams around like a roaring lion looking for its prey. That it's roaming around looking for individuals to, he's roaming around looking for individuals to influence, individuals to consume, individuals to destroy. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it tells us that the, the God of this world, that the demonic realm has blinded the minds of unbelievers. When you talk with an individual and you're looking to share Christ with them, if they're not receiving the gospel and it's seeming as if it's, it's making no difference in their life, you'd be wise to realize that they very well could be having a demonic influence that is impacting them from receiving and hearing the gospel. But the Bible makes it very clear that the devil is a very real being and he uses a host of demons to do his bidding. And I truly believe that our culture, under demonic inspiration, has inundated itself with movies focusing on the supernatural, focusing on the demonic. It doesn't take much but a visit to Redbox or turning on Netflix or Amazon Prime to see the, the number of supernatural movies speaking to or trying to find entertainment in the spiritual realm. And I believe in part that that takes place because the Bible tells us in Second Corinthians that the devil masquerades as an angel of light, meaning he does not want to be discovered. He, his ways do not want to be revealed. So when we make it a source of entertainment, it almost in our minds and in our spirits, it dulls us to the reality of what we're facing. The spiritual realm is very real, and I believe it is nothing that should be minimized, nor should we make a great deal of it. That it's to make it, to minimize it, or to make too much of it are both errors on our part. The Bible tells us that as Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, the Bible tells us that we should not be unaware of the devil's scheming. That's 2 Corinthians 2.11. That we're to be aware of his scheming, aware of his tactics, aware of the way in which he seeks to influence your life, seeks to influence your family, seeks to influence the culture in which we live. But friends, this morning, as real as the demonic realm is, of either, even greater importance for each person to know and live by this morning, is the authority of Jesus Christ is very real. 
In fact, not only is the authority of Jesus Christ very real, the authority of Jesus Christ is the final authority. As we will see in the story we look at in just a moment. There are times where individuals will talk about being afraid of the supernatural, afraid of the demonic. And, and at times you'll see things that I think in the natural realm could cause an individual to, to wrestle with fear or wrestle to, with anxiety over the matter. And I think in those moments when you're confronted with something like that, I can remember as a child in our home, a number of things began to take place because of family members and, uh, who had been exposed to something and some of the work my dad was doing in different villages. And I remember at times there were things that would take place in our home. And as a child specifically, I began to wrestle with fear and could recognize that the enemy was really wanting to use this to create an avenue of fear in my life. And I believe when in those moments when we're tempted to wrestle with fear, we need to remind ourselves that if Jesus is the final authority and I belong to him, then there is absolutely nothing in this world that I need to fear. That if Jesus is the final authority and I belong to him, then I rest under his authority, under his control, and there is absolutely nothing in this world or the next that I need to fear. If you're tempted to fear, then I would encourage you, one of uh, the life declarations that, that I've shared with you have, as a family, we have five specific life declarations that we'll remind ourselves of and live out. And the first one is, nothing rules my life but Jesus. Nothing rules my life but Jesus. And so I would encourage you in those moments, if you're tempted to fear, remind yourself, nothing rules my life but Jesus, and then make every decision from that point forward based on that reality and live that out. That nothing rules our life but Jesus. But when it comes to looking and understanding the authority of Jesus, it's wise for us to remember that not only is his authority very real, but he's very actively asserting his authority in our lives and in our world, that he's still actively moving to disrupt the work of the devil. So with that, I would like to use our remaining amount of time to look in Mark chapter 1 verses 21 through 28. And let's read this together and then we'll just talk about it a little bit. And and I want to show you a few ways in which we can recognize the authority of Jesus, not only in the story, but how it can apply into our lives. It says, they went, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. And the more accurate translation, and uh, parents, I'll just say, tell you this now, don't shoot the messenger. The more accurate translation, Jesus says, shut up. He tells him to shut up, tells the demon to shut up, and sternly says, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came up out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly all over the entire region. When we see Jesus arriving in this community and arriving in the synagogue, The city of Capernaum was a city that was about 10,000 people. It was a rather large community. It was a significant community in the ministry of Jesus. If you look through the Gospels, you'll see that it's actually an area that um, it's a city that he spends a lot of time in and really moves out of in ministry, kind of a launching point. 
It's a place where some of his disciples called home. So it's a significant community. And in a community of about 10,000 people, this, this community, this city would have had multiple synagogues. According to Jewish law, when you had at le- a community that had at least 10 men, they were required to establish a synagogue. Now, a synagogue would be, I think the, the best thing that we can use from our day to get a picture of what a synagogue would be like would be very similar to church, very similar to our gathering like we're having this morning. Early in the Jewish captivity, many think back to around the Babylonian time, they were taken captive as punishment and spent several years in captivity, that the religious leaders of the Jews at that day recognized that the people were going to perish and their faith was going to perish because it was being becoming so mixed in with the different cultures and different faiths around them. So in order to combat, combat that and to, re, to remember not only Jewish culture among the Jews of that day during captivity in different lands and different places, not only to remember Jewish culture, but also to continue to remember, to remind the Israelites of their faith in God and who they were as his children, they established a synagogue. And the synagogue was a place where people would come. There was a time of worship. There was a time of instruction by a teacher or a, a Pharisee religious leader or a scribe, someone who would, who would write the scriptures, who would translate the scriptures, who would transcribe the scriptures, that they would teach that time and then they, they would spend time talking about it. And it was places where kids would go to learn. We see Jesus as a child being found in the temple learning and kind of very similar to that. We, we see that it was a place of learning, a place of education, a place where, where individuals understood the importance of their faith. The Jewish law said that when you had 10 men in a community, that you were required to establish a synagogue. You could begin by meeting in a person's home, and then if local law allowed, you would seek to have a building uh, that you would then use as a specific synagogue. So in a city like Capernaum, there would have been easily hundreds of synagogues. And we see consistently in Jesus' ministry that he consistently visits the synagogue. He places a priority on, on the worship. He places a priority on receiving teaching out of God's Word and, and giving teaching out of God's Word. He places a priority on gathering with others. We see that it's a place that he goes because people are gathered there. And it also becomes a place that Jesus goes often on the the Sabbath. And it becomes a place where we see many of his miracles take place. And one as we even see now when he drives out this demonic spirit in this man. But it's a place where Jesus goes often. And as we look in this story, we can see that in this visit that Jesus brings to this synagogue, the ministry there is no different. Not only does he deliver the word, but he also delivers freedom and healing. So the first thing I want you to see when it just looking at Jesus's authority and understanding his authority, three specific things in the story that we can learn from. And the first thing I think I see specifically is the authority of Jesus's word, the authority of his word. The story tells us in verse 22, it says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had an authority, not as the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law would have been the scribes of the Pharisees, and I shared them with you just a moment ago. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. The scribes were ones who would be very familiar with Scripture because they would take a passage and they would copy it over to create. They didn't have a printing press of the day, so they would then take a, a page of Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. They would take one word, they would tra- write, write, go over, and they would write that word. Then they'd come back and take one word, and they would write the next word over. They were very familiar with Scripture because they were very meticulous in making the transcripts and in passing them along. And so oftentimes in a synagogue, if you, not every synagogue had a specific rabbi or teacher or scribe assigned to it. So if a rabbi or a teacher would be passing through, they would arrive at the synagogue and they would be invited to share. 
And oftentimes these rabbis or these teachers would arrive or a scribe would arrive and they'd come and they'd begin to teach. And as they would begin to teach, they would begin to say, well, such and such says this about this passage. And I think it's this about this passage. And such and such says this about this passage. And they would have a number of different ways and different things that they would describe about the passage. But when Jesus shows up, they recognize this is something different. Jesus is not referencing authority. They're recognizing Jesus is moving in an authority. He's speaking with authority. He's speaking with truth. In fact, we, get, we see that they recognize his teaching is radically different. I think a picture of what would take place in the synagogue when Jesus went there to speak would be much like you see in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says, you've heard it was said this, but I tell you this. He said, you've heard other people say this is their opinion, but let me just tell you, this is how it is. That his teaching was radically different. In fact, it goes on to tell us that later in verse 27, it says that the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. It says they were in awe, or some translations they says that says that they were struck in the mind or they were astonished. And literally it says they're dumbfounded. They're, they're just blown away at, the, at what Jesus is teaching them. They're not just struck by what he said. They're struck by how he said it. They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at how he taught them. He not only presented truth and authority, he embodied truth and authority to them. And they were amazed. They were in awe at the authority of Jesus' word. When I think about that, and I, I think about Jesus standing in the synagogue and standing there and teaching and people just standing there, I'd imagine some just with their, their eyes wide open, their jaw just dropped in amazement at how Jesus is teaching them and the authority that is flowing from what he's saying and how he's saying it. And when I think about the authority of Jesus' words in that moment, I can't help but examine my own life and ask myself, how do I respond to the authority of Jesus' words in my life? How do I respond to his words when they're presented to me? You see, you and I don't necessarily go sit in the synagogue and physically see Jesus standing there teaching today. We don't go and physically sit at his feet and listen to him. But what we must remember is that through the Holy Spirit, we still have an audience with him. He still desires to speak to you. He still desires to speak to me. And as I spend time in his word, as I open my heart to his word, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit takes the word and makes it come alive. And that in that moment, through the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, I have an audience with him. So how do I respond to his authority and his words in my life as he speaks to me? I've found personally that as much as I value the friends and the relationships I have, I have individuals with, I'm facing a challenge. I'll talk with my wife. I have a couple of friends that I'll talk to. They'll share with me scriptures and passages and we'll just, we'll talk and I'll seek counsel from them. And as comforting and as, as counseling as that may be, I have found that there is nothing more life-giving. There is nothing more insightful. There is nothing more liberating in my spirit than when I'm spending time in God's Word and the Holy Spirit takes a truth of His Word and makes it come alive with the authority of Jesus speaking to me in that moment. That the authority of Jesus is meant to be something that speaks into our lives. The second thing I want you to see when it comes to the authority of Jesus is I want you to see the authority of his presence. 
Not only is there the authority of his word, but the authority of his presence. The Gospel of Mark, the story we've just read, says that when Jesus is there and begins to teach, he says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 23, it says just then or immediately, it says a demon-possessed man comes forward. It says that immediately he confronts this demon. There's no cohabitating with this demonic presence and the presence of Jesus. The moment the presence of Jesus is there, this demonic presence is drawn out and confronted and ultimately exercised. That there is no cohabiting. Jesus didn't go looking for him. His presence made it so uncomfortable for this demonic presence to be there that had been sitting in the synagogue most likely day after day that when Jesus' presence and the authority of his presence walked into that moment, it made it so incredibly uncomfortable for the demonic presence. And this is something we see throughout the Gospels. Wherever Jesus goes, his presence disrupts the spiritual climate that's there. It could be the spiritual climate of the religious leaders, a religious spirit. He goes there and his presence disrupts this religious spirit. It could be with someone who's demon-possessed. Wherever he goes, his presence is disrupting the spiritual climate that's there. And he would disrupt it by taking it from what it was and establishing it to what it should be by the ministry and the authority of his presence. Mark describes the demon as an impure spirit. Others will describe it. Some translations, if you're reading it, depending on the translation you have, might say impure. Others might say unclean spirit. The literal translation, the way Mark wrote it, it says that this man was in the grasp of an unclean spirit, that he was in its grasp. It possessed him. He did not possess it. It had complete full possession of him. It was not merely a possession of the mind. It was a possession of the entire being, his physical body. It's described as an impure or an unclean spirit. I think many will call it unclean or impure. Many have come to assume, and I think it's the safe assumption, that an impure or unclean unclean spirit, demonic spirit, is called an impure or unclean spirit because it is the source of everything impure or unclean that we see in humanity. Every sexual sin finds its root in the demonic realm. That it's the source of everything unclean. If you were to take the summary of everything evil, the epitome of everything evil, all that is unclean, all that is ungodly, all that is unchristlike, from the sexual to the violent to the rebellious, everything, everything that stands opposite of the authority and purposes of God in your life has its roots in some place in the demonic realm. But something I find incredibly interesting in the story, Jesus steps into this synagogue and makes it uncomfortable for this demonic spirit to be there. And that tells me that until Jesus arrived, this man could sit comfortably through the motions of worship, through the teaching of the word, through the atmosphere that was there, and there was nothing that made him uncomfortable with being in that presence. But it wasn't until the presence of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, steps into that moment that everything became uncomfortable. And I think this man's words in verse 24, he, he shouts out, he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I think a more, a more accurate rendering would say, we have nothing in common, leave us alone. He says, there is absolutely nothing in common with who we are and who you are, Jesus. It's recognizing the inconsistency with the demonic realm and everything that it produces and the authority and presence 
of Jesus. I think this man, when he, when we recognize this ability to find rest and to be in the synagogue until the presence of Jesus shows up, I think it shows, gives us a little bit of insight. And, I, and Jesus speaks to this in, this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. You're welcome to turn there if you want. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus is teaching and giving insight when it comes to the, uh, the demonic, the spiritual realm. And he says this, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest, but it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. And Jesus then goes on to explain what takes place when that demonic presence comes back to that one. But the the passage, the words really that stand out to me in verse 43 is Jesus says that it's looking and seeking for a place of rest. That that demonic presence is looking for a place of rest. And it says that when it doesn't find it, it returns to the one that gave it a place of rest and it seeks to return. It identifies what Jesus is teaching is that an evil spirit can find a sort of rest in in the human life, in a human home that offers it an environment that is consistent with its nature. Let me say that again. That the demonic presence, a demonic presence can find an environment, if it can find an environment that is consistent with its nature in our lives or in our home, it finds a place in which it can rest. Much like the man in the story, the environment was comfortable, it was consistent with its nature, so it stayed unrivaled and unchecked without challenge. It wasn't until the authority of Jesus, his presence arrived that it ultimately challenged and disrupted the presence. And I think for every person here, for every parent, every child, every teenager, every person who has someone living in your home, you would be wise to consider what type of environment are you catering to in your home? What type of environment do you establish in your home? Are you catering to an environment in your home through, through entertainment choices through television, through movies, through books, through music? Are you catering to an entertainment environment that honors and welcomes the presence of Jesus? Or are you catering to an environment that honors and celebrates the products of an unclean spirit? What type of atmosphere or environment do we create in our home? I think with the ease at which our youth have access to the dark, to horror movies, to supernatural movies, to games and books, that I would caution every person here to be careful what it is that you create an environment for in your home. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that if we go to bed with anger in our hearts, that that can create an avenue or a foothold for the devil to begin to work in our lives. If going to bed angry can, has the possibility to create a foothold for the devil in our lives, how much more if we create an environment that celebrates the products of his very nature. So there's a reason in John 10, 10, Jesus describes the devil and his legions as the destroyer. He describes them as a destroyer. That's the name that he uses to describe the devil. And I think that when we celebrate and watch things that draw entertainment from the demonic origin, we are giving the destroyer access to our families and giving the destroyer access to our homes and to our hearts to our marriages, to our children. Do you want to know what presence you honor in your home, whose presence you honor in your home? 
Look for the fruit that's being produced. Jesus said the devil is the destroyer. I would encourage you, look at relationships. Are they being destroyed? Are they being built up? I would encourage you to look at, look at the things taking place in the lives of your children. Are they being destroyed? Are they being built up? Look at your marriage. Is it falling apart or is it being built up? What is the fruit being produced? And that will show you the pre- whose presence you're honoring and what environment you're creating in your home. I think the opposite of that, Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace. And I love that name about him. I've said this numerous times here. I love the name Prince of Peace because that means that his rule is a rule of peace. His authority is an authority of peace. So does your home have an atmosphere of peace? The relationships, are they at peace with each other? What's the atmosphere that's being catered to in your home? My wife and I, from time to time, just over the years of our marriage and over the years of, of having and raising a family, that we'll take time, we'll go through our home, and we will take time and we'll just pray. We'll say, we want the Holy Spirit to reveal to us anything that's not consistent with His Spirit. We want Him to reveal to us anything that could be an avenue or a foothold for the enemy in our homes and in our lives because we take the name the destroyer very serious and the fruit of what He wants to produce very serious. And so we'll ask Him, we'll we'll ask the Holy Spirit just to give us wisdom and discernment when it comes to our children, to the things they're watching, to the things that, especially when they're younger, the things that were coming in. And in 1 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For the love of the world, those who have the love of the world in them do not have the love of the Father in them. And we want to make sure that our lives are moving in line with the spirit of our heavenly Father, not the spirit of the world. So from time to time, we'll go through our home and we'll just pray, God, give us wisdom and discernment. And it's not just a matter of walking through the home once and God, give me wisdom and discernment and then we're done and on with life. But just trying to create that culture, that awareness of God, what, give me discernment. Give me discernment to how our home honors your presence. How our lives, do we, do we create an, an environment or an atmosphere in where you're honored? And I can remember several years ago, our girls were much younger than we didn't have our boys at the time. And in our home, there began to be what we recognized, we described as almost a disruption of the peace in our home. It wasn't that there was strife or tension with others, but we could just sense the atmosphere was not an atmosphere of peace. And we just began to pray. We say, God, lead us to what is this that's, that's causing this, what we're sensing. We can sense it. We don't know what it is, but give us wisdom and discernment to what it is because clearly your spirit is trying to recognize, really trying to set an alarm off in our spirits to something that could be here. So we begin to pray and over a series of, of, of days and over a, a, a series of amount of time, as we prayed, the Holy Spirit began to bring me, bring, bring us specifically to a movie that we brought into the home. Now, I feel like we have rather, um, rather strict guidelines for what type of movies and entertainment we have in our home. And it had met all the, that criteria. And it, was a, it appeared to be a very innocent, childlike movie. We'd had it for our girls to watch. And I can remember when it, when it was as if the Holy Spirit began to put the spotlight, put his finger on this, this thing, that I began to think, that can't possibly be it. It's, it's so innocent. That can't possibly be what, what we're recognizing as, as just throwing off the, what we're sensing as God's peace in our home. And I shared it with Teresa. We began to pray, and I kept thinking, it can't be that. But I think if, if you've ever had God put his finger on something in your life and you try to reason it away, he kind of begins to press a little bit harder. And we begin to recognize this is what God's dealing with. And I kept trying to minimize it, saying, it's not, I mean, that's, it's a movie my kids like. It's an innocent movie. And I, and I remember one time so clearly, it was this, as if, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and, and spoke into my life in that moment. And he said, do you value my presence or this movie more? 
I said, God, I value your presence much more. And so we got the movie, we threw it away, we prayed over our home, and in that moment, we just sensed their, his presence in a peace be reestablished in our home. And you could be sitting there and you could be thinking, that is absolutely extreme, looking for the demonic behind everything. And I am not saying that we go on a witch hunt through our homes. I'm not saying that we go on a a search for every single thing. But I believe that if we're willing and listen to what God's Spirit is revealing to us, He will show us. And the Bible tells us that the devil is so cunning, seeking to destroy our lives, that he's going to introduce things that would appear to be innocent as an angel of light that are meant to disrupt and destroy what it is that God wants to do in our lives. And so I guarantee you, the presence you choose to honor in your home by the atmosphere and environment you choose to create, whose presence you choose to honor in your home will be seen in the results that are produced. Jesus' presence does not coexist with the demonic. The demonic has to flee. And so I would encourage you when you go home today, and I'll give you a few questions in a few moments, to take and think about for your family, think about for your life. So we say, God, am I living a life that's consistent with the authority of your presence in my life? And then the last thing I want you to see when it comes to Jesus's authority is I want you to see the authority of Jesus's ministry. The authority of Jesus's ministry. It says that when the demon manifests itself in verse 25 and verse 26, it says it convulsed, it screamed, it shook the man, and then it came out. Literally, it says it was torn from him. What it identifies and tells us is that there really wasn't a debate. There was no struggle. That Jesus' ministry and the authority of his ministry brings absolute freedom, brings absolute life, brings absolute liberation. And his freedom is not something, the freedom that Jesus brings into our lives, that he intends to bring into your home, he intends to bring into your marriage, intends to bring into the lives of your children. It's not something that's merely contained on the pages of Scripture, but rather it is something that's intended to be experienced in your life today. The ministry and authority and life-giving freedom that Jesus brings is something that's intended to be experienced today. That his presence and his authority is very real and it's very powerful in this moment. In 1 John 10.10, I've mentioned that Jesus says the devil is described as a destroyer. The second half of that verse, he says, but I have come so you can have life and have it to the full. That you can have life and have it more abundantly. That was his intent through the gospels and that's his intent in our lives. That his authority, his presence, and his freedom is something for you, for your family, for your marriage right now. So friends, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live with worry. We can live in the freedom and the authority that only Jesus can bring. In 1 John 4, 4, uh, it was on our banners a couple of years ago. We did a series called Supernatural. And one of the banners, the verses we had on it was 1 John 4, 4. And it says, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And I took that banner and I hung it in my office just to remind me of that truth, that authority. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. It doesn't matter if you make a decision to follow Christ this morning or you've been walking with Christ for 50 years, whether you're 50 or 15, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. The authority and presence of Jesus living in you is greater than any and every authority that you will face today and you will face through this week and you will face in this life because it flows from the ministry of who Jesus is in your life, that his presence is liberating and it brings immediate freedom. 
So as we close this morning, I wanted to give you just four questions for you to take and to consider. And so just to listen to these and to go home and look at how you can apply them into your lives. First, how is Jesus' authority and presence honored in your life and in your home? Secondly, are there things in your life, your home, and your family that give the enemy easy access? It could be relationships. It could be entertainment. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and he'll show you what it is. But other things that give the enemy easy access in your life and in your home. Third, is your thought life and your life pattern resistant to or consistent with the spirit of the world? Is your thought life and your life pattern consistent with or resistant to the spirits of the world? And then lastly, and this is where I'd like to to end as we prepare to just gather around the front in prayer. What are you willing to change to better align your life, your family, and your home with Christ's authority? What are you willing to change? What are you willing to move out? What are you willing to move in? It's just as much important as when we move things out as it is that we move things in. Perhaps it's creating a, a time where you as a family can pause and spend time together exploring God's Word. Perhaps it's a time of just having the TV off, not having it all the way on, always on, and having on worship so that you're just having your heart and your mind drawn into the presence of Jesus. Perhaps it's putting verses around that call to you and remind you of who Jesus is and His authority in your home. Perhaps as a father, it's stepping forward and adding in time to pray verbally over your wife and to pray verbally over your children. Perhaps as a wife, it might be going to your husband and seeking forgiveness and asking and offering an apology. What are you willing to do so that the presence of Jesus is honored in your home? What are you willing to do so that his presence is honored in your life? So that his presence is honored in your family? If there's something you are willing to do that when you did it, Jesus would be standing there and you could experience his peace wash over you in a life-giving, liberating way, would you not want to do it? Well, he's there through the presence of his Holy Spirit. He's in your home. He's in your life. He's in your children. And he's calling to you and saying, if you'll just do this, here's what you get in return. But friends, as we're here in this moment that I believe there are individuals and couples and families in this moment that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. I believe He's been speaking to you before this moment, and this moment becomes a confirming moment of things that He's been wanting to deal with, things He's revealing to you right now that He wants to deal with. And I would encourage you, don't take a moment to justify it. Don't explain it away. Don't just leave it for later. Respond to the Holy Spirit right now with how He's speaking to you.